Welcome to Bible study. This is Nikolita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you today. I'd like to say Happy New Year to each one of you. It's good to start this uh, new year with a wonderful uh, book of the Bible, Isaiah. And this is an amazing book. I'm looking forward to learn and to understand more from this, uh, this book. We are going to tackle some of the topics in the first part of our uh, program, like crisis of identity, crisis of leadership, when your world is failing apart. The hard way, noble prince of peace, playing God. These are just some of the topics which we are going to approach in the first part of our study for a couple of months. And uh, I wish that you'll be able to join us every time to follow up with all these uh, topics. And right now, I will invite you to open the Bible with us, if you can. And uh, we'll proceed with uh, this wonderful study. But just before, I would like to introduce our panel for today. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. Welcome to our program today, Helen. We miss you for uh, some uh, weeks before, but it's good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Nick. It's lovely to be here and to see all the smiling faces of the panel. Will, it's good to have you with us also. It is a privilege. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. And Len, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the good new wishes, uh, good new year wishes, should I say, and I wish you the same, listeners. And uh, we're glad that you could join us today. And Joe, thanks for joining us today. Always good to be here. Thank you. Marek, you have the privilege to open this session of uh, studies from the book of Isaiah. Thank you for joining us. You are our facilitator today, and I'm just going to hand it over to you. Thank you, Nick. Well, we are happy to have survived a rather challenging year. Admittedly, nobody knows what 2021 will bring, but there is one certainty that we can always hold on to, and that is that God is with us. And God will guide and protect and uh, bless us as we remain faithful to him. Well, we begin with a new topic for this quarter, the first quarter of 2021. It's the study of the Old Testament book, which bears the name of its author. It's the book of Isaiah. And the title of today's study, as Nick has already mentioned, is Crisis of Identity. What do we mean by the term crisis of identity? A crisis of identity refers to a personal psychosocial conflict that involves confusion about one's social role and one's personality. At the same time, a crisis of identity can refer to a conflict at the corporate level. It refers to a state of confusion in an institution or organization regarding its nature, purpose, mission or direction. And this is the focus of the problem that Isaiah focuses on and uh, addresses through the message that he provides to Israel. But before we start to look at the message in much more detail, I would like to invite Len to offer a word of prayer before we open the word. Yes, listeners, would you join us in prayer? My dear Father in heaven, you are the same God who was present in the time when Isaiah, under inspiration, wrote the book that we're studying today. You're the same God who extended uh, mercy and kindness and love to recalcitrant people back then. And we know that you care for us. 
and extend us the same mercy and grace. Pray that as we study this book, that we might learn something from it and that it might change our lives and our appreciation for you. So we pray for your special blessing as we present this study today and also your special blessing on the listeners. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Len, and thank you, panel members, for uh, sharing uh, this, uh, this study with us. The message of the book of Isaiah was directed to the people of his time, but its relevance extends down through the centuries to the New Testament times of Christ and to us living in 2021. When I read portions of the book, I almost sense a similar theme to that of the book of Revelation, of warnings, of judgments, of hope, and of restoration. But generally speaking, when we read the book of Isaiah, it is renowned for its many well-known phrases and passages, and words that have inspired many students of the Bible, political leaders, and among others, some of the great composers and have contributed to famous compositions such as Handel's Messiah. But let me share with you some facts about the book of Isaiah that will help us appreciate the book perhaps a little bit more. It is the first of the prophetic books in the Bible, and Isaiah, as its author, has always been considered as one of the great prophets. Sometimes we refer to them as one of the major prophets. Even though we know little about Isaiah himself, we can piece together some important facts that add special meaning to the study of this book. Isaiah, first of all, is identified as the son of Amos. Now, we must not confuse Amos with Amos, the prophet. They were two different individuals. Since he often spoke with kings, it is sometimes suggested that Isaiah was an aristocrat, possibly even of royal stock, well-placed to access political and influential people of his time. Isaiah, as you read the book, was a well-educated individual. He was married to a prophetess, and they had two sons who at times also formed a part of his ministry. In order to place Isaiah in the context of Old Testament history, Isaiah's ministry and prophecies of the coming Messiah were recorded seven centuries before Christ was born. His ministry came at a time of national crisis and pending judgment, and this is the focus of the first 39 chapters of the book. With the last 27 chapters, the focus is predominantly on prophecy, especially on prophecy relating to the coming of the Messiah, who would restore, deliver, and usher in a new kingdom. His active ministry spent some 60 years and the reigns of several of Judah's kings who are mentioned in the introduction of the book in verse 1, and overlapped with the ministry of a number of minor prophets such as Amos, Hosea, and Micah, whose ministry commenced just prior to Isaiah's. Isaiah's ministry began in Jerusalem when, according to Isaiah chapter 6, a young man, Isaiah, was caught up in vision, probably in Jerusalem, in the temple itself, and saw God and was overwhelmed by the presence of divine glory and holiness. During this encounter, Isaiah became agonizingly aware of God's need for a messenger to the people of Israel, and despite his own sense of inadequacy, he offered himself for God's service 
by pronouncing the words, Here am I, send me. He was thus commissioned to give voice to the divine word and the numerous warnings and messages that God would send to his people. His life unfortunately came to a tragic end when, according to tradition, he was executed during the reign of King Manasseh by being sawn in two. One of the very first important lessons that we can learn in the introduction to the study of the book of Isaiah is the meaning of Isaiah's name. In Hebrew, it's Yesha Yahu. God is salvation. It is interesting to note the importance of names in the Old Testament. These names were to memorialize the special message given by God, and this was also reflected not only in his name, but in the names of his two sons. As we come to the text of the first chapter of the book, the message of Isaiah is directed to Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem in particular. And it begins with the loud proclamation, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The call for the heavens and earth to be witness to the message given by Isaiah gives the impression that the message has a far broader audience, one beyond the time and place of Jerusalem. It's a biblical expression that reminds us sometimes of Moses calling on heaven and earth to be a witness to the, to the uh, promises and curses that, uh, uh, that he was pronouncing. What is most important and emphasized frequently from the very first chapter onwards is that the message is from God himself. In the first reference to God in verse 2 of chapter 1, Isaiah uses the expression Yahweh, the imminent God, no other but the God of the covenant. Later in verse 10, Isaiah presents God as Elohim, the transcendent God, the God of the universe. Verse 18 refers to the Lord has spoken. Verse 20, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 24, the mighty one of Israel declares. And when we look at verse 18, which is the memory text uh, for our study this week, Isaiah presents a loving God who wants to engage with his people and invites them to come and reason with him. So many times the focus there is on God, God the creator, God the transcendent God, the one who made the universe, God the loving one, God the rational reasoning God who wants to engage with us. There is no doubt as we look at the book of Isaiah that there is a certain urgency in the message of Isaiah. There is no time to be lost And so Isaiah comes to the point of his message. The message being, God is bringing charges against his people because of their apostasy. They have refused to know and understand God. They have rebelled and sinned. They have ignored his warnings, turning their backs on the God of their covenant. As a result, they were morally and spiritually corrupt from head to toe and loaded with guilt even though they continue to offer prayers and sacrifices, these were no longer welcome by God. God gave them prosperity and a good life, but they did not serve him. They did not acknowledge him. Instead, they abused and oppressed their own people. The result, they were bringing God's judgments on themselves. Judgment was at the door. 
the nation was facing complete political downfall. But there is so much more that we'll look at in this book. And as we progress through the study of this chapter, Len, I'm just wondering if you could expound a little bit more on one of the very specific charges that God makes against his people, and that is that their religion was nothing more than empty ritualism. The section of that study is actually entitled Rotten Ritualism. Would you kindly present and focus on that topic for us? Well, needless to say, God was very unhappy with the Israelites because these were the people he chose to demonstrate what he is like to the rest of the world. Unfortunately, many times the Israelites forgot about God and adopted idols and practices of the surrounding nations. These are all pagan things. And, you know, that's when things went wrong for them. As God, in order to bring them back to their senses and to him, withdrew his blessings from them. So they would ask the question, well, what's going on here? But uh, unfortunately, they were very slow to learn. And so if you open up your Bibles, listeners and panel, to Isaiah chapter 1, God, through Isaiah, calls these people who are supposed to be his people some pretty hefty kind of names. We're going to look at verse 10, Isaiah 1 verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Well, it's a description because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were anything but um, serving God, and God had to destroy them because of the wickedness that was in their society. What happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, God destroyed them by fire by burning sulphur, and uh, anyone who goes to that region where they used to be will find that it's completely destroyed and the ground doesn't grow anything. And God is calling his people inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. That shows how bad they were. Well, they were morally corrupt, but they still practiced religion. I wonder, uh, Job, Would you like to read Isaiah 1, verses 11 and 12? Certainly. It says in verse 11, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? All right, well, now, here's a situation where these people who were utterly corrupt and wicked were still carrying on the sacrifices that had been uh, ordained by God for the forgiveness of sins. And yet their, their heart wasn't really in it. They were just carrying on with these sacrifices. In other words, the whole thing had become formality. And God condemns these people because of that formality. Helen, would you like to read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 14? Yes, happy to. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony, 
Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. <laughs> wow. What is God saying? I hate them. Well, these, these festivals were given for the people to re-engage, if you like, with God. The Sabbath was a time to re-engage with God, and some of these other festivals were too. In fact, that's why we have the term these days, holidays. It really refers to holy days. And God is saying, look, I hate this stuff, which was supposed to be an opportunity for the people to re-engage with him. And that's because of the cold formality that was conducted in there. Now, it goes even further than that. And God's condemnation of these people will. Would you read verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1? Certainly, Len. When you lift your hands outspread in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Though you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. There is blood on your hands. Wash yourselves and be clean. Put away the evil of your deeds. Away, out of my sight. So there's really two aspects here. that God's not even happy with the people's prayers. First of all, these prayers were just formality. Now, I've seen some documentaries where people have been in Tibet and there are prayer wheels and somebody will walk along where these prayer wheels are and it's supposed to be every turn of a prayer wheel is a prayer. In other places, and I've seen this myself in China, there are prayer flags and every time the flag flaps in the wind, it's supposed to be a prayer. And then, of course, other people have things like um, rosary beads. Now, here God is condemning these kind of prayers because they meant nothing. God was not interested in just hearing a, a repetitive statement over and over again or a prayer wheel or whatever it is. Prayer had become a formality. The other thing is... The prayers didn't mean anything to the people. And when we pray, I believe, we should pray from the heart, not just through repetition. Now, in that last bit Will read, it says something about the people's hands were full of blood. What do you think that means, panel? Any mm. thoughts? They're guilty of violence and oppression. Yes, I uh, studied the play Shakespeare, Macbeth, written by William Shakespeare when I was in high school and a murder had been committed and that person's guilt continued and continued. They, their conscience was totally seared and this expression, hands full of blood, means that people are guilty but they hadn't been forgiven. Yeah, if I could just um, comment on uh, what you just asked also, just to remember that we are saying few things there, reading from the Bible, that God says that I hate your festivals. And, you know, and we mentioned that God gave all of those instructions to his people. 
Now, it's very significant here to understand that God says, I hate yours, I mean your festivals, not what I gave you. Because what God gave them was totally different. And God gave them instruction in a whole package. And we are tempted even today to take just sections of that package which God gave us or improve it as we think fits better for my culture or for my situation. We don't understand that what God said and did was for the whole good of each one of them. But they felt that they can do better than God asked them to do. And in the end, God said, look, I cannot stand your prayers. I cannot stand your ceremonies. I cannot stand what you're doing because your hands are full of blood because you do the things which I didn't ask you to do. Yes, well said, Nick, and I believe that's quite right. I'd just like to deal with a little bit more and then I'd like to wind this section up. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, God then counsels the people. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Well, obviously, people are doing pretty much everything wrong, and God is telling them, look, you need to be clean. You're filthy. And he says one of the things is justice. They were not practicing justice. Now, this morning, as I was driving home from golf, I heard a little bit of the news. The news reporter who reported the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan in China has just been jailed. And I said to my wife, she was with me, she walked down to the golf course, and I said to her, you cannot expect justice in that country. If you do anything that embarrasses the government, uh, they'll have you. And this was a similar situation here. Justice was not being served. What was right was turned into what was wrong, and what was wrong was turned into what was right. You would have thought that these people who were identified as God's special people would have changed as a result of all these warnings. But you know what? 700 years later, they were still doing the same things. And Jesus spoke about that in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 to 36, where he condemned these people. He said, look, you're, you're like dirty plates. You wash the outside and look clean, but inside it's all filthy. You need to change that. Wash the inside and the outside will be clean. Well, anyhow, I want to share with you what I think are lessons for us in this modern day and age. And the first one is, and by the way, there are nine, so I'll be fairly quick. We cannot expect God to bless us when we go against his will. It doesn't work that way. In fact, when Adam and Eve went against his will, he cursed them. Number two, those who are wicked can't expect to have eternal life. John 3.16 outlines that. They will perish. Having a form of godliness is what, what the 
Israelites back in Isaiah's time and the Jews in Jesus' time is not enough. We have to love the Lord, not just go through the motions. These people were practicing traditions, and tradition is no excuse for godliness. Jesus condemned traditions, replacing the genuine love for the Lord. Now, traditions can be okay, but when they replace a heartfelt reaching out to God, they're useless. Number five, you can't fool God and buy him off. In other words, you can't go through the motions and that's to be accepted by God as holiness. God hears the prayers of those who reach out to him. Reciting some mantra or something like that, unacceptable. And number eight is that Christian attitudes are that we should be of help to the needy. Number nine, God detests formalized religion mm-hmm. where the form becomes more important than the person who you're worshipping. Thank you, Len. Thank you. I, uh, I came across this very relevant uh, comment in my study Bible in relation to this, uh, to this passage. It says, sacrifices were to be an outward sign of their inward faith in God. But the outward signs became empty because there was no inward faith within. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes these formalities and rituals are almost compensating for a lack of that which God requires. And I, I, I so much uh, remember the words uh, spoken by, uh, by Samuel in the first book of Samuel, chapter 15 and verse 22. Does the Lord delight in offerings and sacrifices? To obey is better than to sacrifice. Len, you have a follow-up comment, and Helen, you likewise. Just a very quick one. In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 26, there is this expression, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. Now, here is the difference. There's a formal religion and there is a heart religion. And what God is saying to these people here Your formal religion means nothing to me. In fact, I hate it. Give me your heart. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. And and that message is so relevant to us today. It's as relevant today as it was in Isaiah's time and in Christ's time. Helen? Yeah, I thought it was interesting in comparing Micah, his state, the Lord's case against Israel in chapter 6. He he goes on in in verse 8, it says, People, the Lord has told you what is good, what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And this is what Isaiah was saying in verse 17, you know, learn to do good, seek justice. So that's do justly, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. That's love mercy. And if we flip down to verse 19, it says, if you will only obey me, you'll have plenty to eat. And that's walking humbly with your God. Nick. Just, uh, Marco, on what you, you mentioned uh, also, I like to say this. I heard this expression, and I learned a point, a good lesson from there. It says that people who don't have much inside, they put a lot on outside. 
Now, I come from an Orthodox background, uh, you know, um, very traditional uh, Orthodox uh, belief in, in my country, in Romania. And it's so much fast and so much pomp of, uh, you know, just to show everything around. But when you ask people about their deep connection with God, their faith, there is not much there. And that's the danger even today. Even with the charismatic movements, when it's so much emphasized on, on things, you know, exterior, and I'm not sure how much is down deep in the heart mm-hmm. to live and to express your faith because of really something which, which is inside rather than just to show around and sometimes just uh, refer to the, to the, you know, feelings and uh, all those things. Mm. Thank you. It, it was, uh, I, I was uh, listening to an interesting discussion on the ABC this week where the predictions are that by 2030, the interest in religion will grow very significantly. Religion will become a very prominent issue. But what was interesting to note was that it, the interest in religion was not on account of an interest in theology. It was an interest in politics and how religion potentially can collaborate and assist uh, politicians in achieving their political goals. That's a worrying trend because, if anything, it steeps us into more of the kind of practices that we have been referring to in this first chapter of, of Isaiah. Will, I, I was wondering if you would be kind enough to uh, focus on the next little segment in chapter one, where in spite of the failures and the very corrupt state of, uh, of the nation of Israel and Judah, the Lord extends to them a beautiful invitation. Would you elaborate on that section, please? Yes, we find here the Lord saying in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let us settle the matter or let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. You know, we find here a situation where the nation is as guilty as death They are confronted with a judge now who wants to free them. He wants to lay no charge against them. Uh, Here is a judge that's keen to set a pardon in motion to save their lives. They need to reason together, deliberate, uh, come to a favorable finality. You know, what an image of God this is. To me, he's not portrayed as a harsh tyrant nor a vindictive uh, ruler, we might say. In fact, um, Len read of in the, in, the, in the verses, verse 16 and 17, where he appeals to them to wash themselves and make themselves clean. You know, to me, that's, this suggests that there is hope. He's still seeking to get them to repent and turn from their evil ways, no matter how degenerate they have been. And, of course, he speaks about the sins being as red as scarlet, and uh, he'll make them as white and pure. The imagery is pretty clear for us to understand. White, of course, is the color of purity and uh, the absence of blood guilt. God is offering to change them. You know, God, in his loving character, American panel and listener, 
I see him restraining himself from annihilating the people that deserve to be annihilated with their sins. The picture we get of God here is instead well portrayed in the words of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. In Hosea 11 verse 8, he says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I set you like Zebulun? Those were the cities destroyed with Sodom. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Let's remember that uh, God is dealing with rebellion here. Uh, A blatant disregard that would call forth judgment and punishment. But what stands out to me is what Lenis said regarding the people practicing sin in the full knowledge of how much it, uh, it offends God. They so righteously then still claim to be his people. Uh, they go on with uh, serving him with their rituals, the religious services, outwardly performing acts of consecration while inwardly being far from the true devotion and the submission to the will of God. You know, if I may just uh, interject here, on a very personal level, reading this chapter again really challenges my thinking. The Spirit of God is very effective in bringing a life application to what one reads in scriptures. You know, I had to ask myself the question, and this is where the rubber hits the road, I think. Is it possible that I, too, could be going through the motions of religious practice while being spiritually far from God? Frankly, could I be religious but not spiritual? Of course, as I attend church and even serve in the work of God on earth, and while people around me could applaud my dedication and service, you know, no one, nobody could know how really empty I am inside. I recall that Charles Spurgeon put the spotlight on this danger um, for me or anyone living with uh, this, this outward religion. Um, He said, can any reasonable man imagine that God should save man? And he's talking to preachers here in uh, addressing it to his students. Can any reasonable man imagine that God should save men, preachers, for offering salvation to others while they refuse it themselves and for telling others those truths which they themselves neglected and abused? Then he goes on to say many a tailor goes in rags that that makes most costly robes for others. Many a cook scarce licks his fingers when he hath dressed for others the most costly dishes. Concluding, Charles Spurgeon says, Believe it, brethren, God never saved any man for being a good preacher, but because he was justified. He was sanctified and consequently faithful to his master's work. And so to me, American panel and listener, the words that the Lord speaks in Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, 
they shall be like wool. The, um, the old hymn used to, well, says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, I take and seal it. Seal it for thy, coat, thy courts above. Mm. I'm so, I tend away from God as Israel of old. But you know, we, like anybody today, need to work closely with the Lord to lay aside our rebellion and our tendency to depart from his covenant with us. And I'm really glad here too that the Lord is the one. Yes, he is the one that takes the initiative and offers us change and offers mm. us life eternal. Mm. Thank you very, very much, Will. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful words, a beautiful passage that I remember because because of the fact that uh, it was one of the first texts that I uh, I, I committed to memory as a as a teenager studying the Bible. As we progress through this chapter, it becomes very clear that God's blessings, blessings of prosperity, are very closely linked to uh, obedience and certain obligations, particularly obligations in relation to social justice issues. Um, Joe, would you kindly take us through the next uh, few texts uh, of, of the chapter, please? Yes. If we look at Isaiah 1, starting at verse 19, it says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel you will be devoured by the sword. Here appears to be almost an ultimatum to eat, to be prosperous, or to be eaten, to be slain. And this theme appears on multiple levels through the Bible. We, we are to, be, to eat or be eaten is metaphorical, of course, and it requires us to choose a side, to choose our destiny. Uh, we, do we want truth or a delusion, life? or death, is there a middle path? Or can't there be a mutually convenient compromise? Let's look at some of the scriptures. Now, as Lynn has already pointed out, that the Jewish people, and as Nick has also pointed out, we can also go, at, you know, in these days, we can go through the motions of ceremony and rituals, um, and our hearts are far from God. In those days, all sorts of injustices and evil was being tolerated and indulged in by even those who should have been upstanding examples and lights in their community. And as Len, I think, has already mentioned, what did God require from them was to wash, make themselves clean and stop doing wrong. Now, we might say, well, how, you know, God is demanding, you know, he's giving them be obedient or be devoured by the sword. God is not, you cannot command love. You cannot command respect. It is deserved. And God has pursued them relentlessly. You know, why will you die, O Ephraim? You know, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God wants everyone to be saved. He wants to bless them so plentifully, but they are resisting. And so God is saying, I cannot continue to bless you. I think we can refer to also if we go to Deuteronomy where, um, you know, there's that the blessings and the curses and our listeners might like to read them in their entirety where it says, 
Um, this day I call the heavens and the earth as a witness against you, and I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Very profound words. So this is these are words that echo through to our time as well. We are to choose where we will stand. Like Joshua, me and my family, we will we choose God. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. So it appears that there is no middle ground, is there? It's not like, can we work this out, God? You know, can you know we can't fool God. We can't woo Him, um, His approbation and approval by, you know, an ostentatious or a showy display of religiosity. That doesn't work for God. He looks through to the heart. And so we need to be genuine. And I guess this has come through with Lynn and with what um, others have said, that we need to be sincere in our devotions to God. Now, this cannot be commanded. I cannot make myself sincere. I need to go to God and say, Lord, I am far, far away from you and what I know is the best and the right thing to do. Create in me a new heart. Be with me. Um, help me to be the person that you would like me to be. Now, God is not, uh, he doesn't put um, just random demands on how we should live. The commandments aren't onerous. All that God requires is that we love him supremely and our neighbour as ourselves. And the commandments are to do with social justice, to protect the rights of others. God is so displeased when we hurt other people, when we hurt ourselves through indulging of selfishness. And so so we can't fool God. He, he looks at who we really are. And so he asks us, just like he did with Israel. Now we could read through the entire chapter, the rest of the chapter, but it's summed up in, it goes on from verse 20 to 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. So they were they were faithful to him at one point, but now, now they are just basically indulging themselves in lustful practices of the nations around them. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. And that refers to your hands are covered in blood, which was brought up earlier. And so your rulers are rebel par rebels, partners with thieves, they love bribes and chase after gifts. No one to defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow's case does not come before them. Why? Probably because she can't afford legal representation. And so it goes on. And I guess the, the take-home message from here is I need to choose today my destiny. I need to choose whose side I will be on. There is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. It would be really convenient for, for all of us, I suppose, for the unregenerate heart. But God asks us and he says, I offer you, I offer you all my blessings, not as a reward, but as a consequence, a consequence, a natural consequence of doing his will and doing what's right. And if you don't want what's good, well, there's only one other destiny, and that is basically the sword. I guess that's metaphorical for death. And so um, I guess we can all say that we have experienced the principles of blessing and cursing in our lives through consequences of choices that we've made, either good or bad. 
but then we've got to keep away from the prosperity gospel as well. Not everything that happens to a Christian is of their own choosing or deserving. Um, You know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So I guess there's a balance in there. But the question is, whose side do I choose to be on Mm. today? Good. Thank you very much. Len, you had a comment. Very quick one. You know, God is a, a thorough gentleman. He outlines the problems. He also provides the remedy for those problems. And then he gives the consequences. If you continue in your evil ways, it's going to be it's going to go hard for you. If you turn and serve me, you will be blessed. And I think that's a universal law. Nick, you had a comment. Yes. Along the line what uh, Len was also saying, I'd like to point out just a couple of things uh, about what Will was sharing and Joe. Uh, first of all, the boldness of God. God is pointing out um, our transgressions and our situation. And I like to learn from that. Living in a society and in a, in a time when we believe that uh, most important is to, you know, to keep it for yourself. Don't say anything, you know, because you may offend somebody. If you stand for the truth, you are not offending anybody because the truth is truth. One thing I learned. Secondly, God is calling for obedience. And as Len pointed out, if we obey, then God is promising the remedies, you know, and uh, what was, what's the outcome of that? And in uh, Isaiah 44, 22, God says that he will never remember. Now, we can fall in a trap many times, even though we stay for the truth, the boldness. But if we see people uh, falling or whatever, we are becoming judgmental and we, we are acting like human beings. I, I believe overall the lesson for me to take home from here is that you need to be genuine. You need to allow God to work in you what it's needed, even if you like it or not. Mm, thank you. Now, as we, as we conclude the study on crisis of identity here, the warnings and the pleas lead to a ominous love song, a song about the vineyard, a song of heartbreak, so similar to the story of the vineyard that Jesus shared in the New Testament during one of his discourses. Uh, Helen, would you kindly take us through the last segment of our study uh, of chapter one? Yes, I'm happy to do that. We're, um, we've gone over to chapter five now, and um, it's a song about the Lord's vineyard. It's a love song, but it's an interesting song. It starts off talking about the one that um, Isaiah, he said, I will sing for the one I love. Isaiah, as you mentioned earlier on, Marek, Isaiah was a prophet, but he also was one that gave warnings, doom and gloom, but he also upheld God you know, and his love for God. And here he was going to sing for the one he loved, a song about his vineyard. And if you want to know who the vineyard is, it tells us in in verse 7, it says, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. In other words, God chose a nation 
he chose a nation that was to bear fruit and to carry out his work to uphold justice, and unfortunately, it didn't. It says here, now I'll sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. That was in the land of Canaan. He ploughed the land, cleared its stones and planted it with the best vines and in the middle he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. And then he waited for the harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. And if you look at that verse, you can see that he did everything absolutely everything he could to get beautiful, rich harvest of sweet grapes. You know, I looked up Matthew 7.20 and it says, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so too can the people by their actions. Mm -hmm. And this was the wild grapes that they actually produced. And it's it's almost a very sad song because when when I go down and, and I look and I think, Verse 4, and I'm jumping a bit around on this one, but verse 4, it says, What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done in the past? You know, if only they would have taken time and realised, you know. He put a watchtower there, and I believe that was the sanctuary, you know, to remind the people of what God did for them. They had reminders all the way along. Um, And I thought, whoa, whoa. And like Will, I went and looked at my life and I thought, how many reminders has God given me? How much has he done for me? I also looked at Galatians and it says, the reason I looked up the New Testament is because we've been dealing all with Isaiah, but we need to remember that the whole Bible is about God's love. And he also gives us warnings. And he did in Galatians, in Galatians 5.19, it says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a bit like your blessings, as you mentioned, Joe, you know, back in Deuteronomy. Uh, the, the cursings, I should say. The blessings come, verse 22, it says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and there is no law against these things. So in these few few verses that we read, you know, God gets to the point where he says, I expected sweet grapes. Why did my vineyard give me bitter ones? And then in verse 5 comes the sad part. You know, he's just said, what more could I do? And he said, now let me tell you what I will do. I will tear down its hedges. I'll let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned, the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. And, you know, he finishes up in verse 7 saying, The nation of Israel is a vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard the cries of violence. Does that sound like our world today? Mm. It really, really does, doesn't it? You know, what more could he have done for the children of Israel? What more could he do for us? He died on the cross for you and for I. 
And what more could he do? There, there was a statement in, um, I was reading in a commentary, and it says, you know, when it talked about your sins are red, it's like we have got a debt, a credit, a red, you know, we've gone into the, the um, sorry, debit, debit, and it's red, and we can never repay it. And that's what the children of Israel, they couldn't repay it no matter what they did, except if they turned back to God and remembered what he did for them and mm. followed him and walked humbly with him. Mm. And it's a very interesting passage if you want to really go in-depth into that one. It starts off, the one I love, song about his vineyard and how he looked after it, and then it finishes off with what God expected. Mm. What's, what is God going to expect when he comes to this earth? Mm. Thank you so, so much. As we look at a summary of this chapter, I like the very brief summary statement at the conclusion of the study. When God's people forget him and take his blessings for granted, he reminds them that they are accountable to their covenant with him. Mercifully, he points out their condition, warns them about the destructive consequences of abandoning his protection, and urges them to allow him to heal and cleanse them. And I come back to our memory verse. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. What a wonderful study. Uh, As we begin to look at the book of Isaiah, I'm sure there will be many, many blessings for us because its message is so relevant to us today. As we close, could I ask you to have our final closing prayer with us, please, Helen? Thank you. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your invitation. Right now, just as you spoke to the children of Israel, I know you're speaking to our hearts saying, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. Father, what a wonderful, wonderful promise. I thank you for the blood of Christ on the cross that cleanses us from the stain of sin. I thank you for the examples in in the, the Bible that show us the way to go, but also shows us what happens when we go after our, only desi- our own desires and forget you. Help us not to lose our identity. Help us, Lord, not to be in a crisis of identity, but to be very sure of who we are, your children, princes and princesses, because you are the king. Thank you for adopting us into your family and may we never forget it and may we spend eternity with you and the family of God right through. For I don't know how long eternity is, Father, but we thank you. We thank you for preparing a place for us. We thank you for your warnings and we thank you for the opportunity that we have right now to turn again to you. Thank you, Lord, bless us and may the words of our heart and the meditation of our heart acceptable to you lord i pray in your name amen thank you very much everyone for uh, being part of this uh, bible study opening the book of uh, isaiah and uh, looking forward for um, the blessings of this book even though we learn that um, you know uh, the people of god they were uh, facing uh, issues of identity And this study today was uh, entitled Crisis of Identity. I only invite you 
to join us again next time. When we are looking more into crisis of leadership, and that's a big question mark, who should lead us? And I pray that uh, you'll be blessed as we uh, approach that uh, subject. Until then, I wish you God's blessings and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.